<clears throat> Last week, we asked the question, what is eternal life? We sort of grappled with this verse where Jesus comes and he says, eternal life is that you know God. This knowing God is not just having knowledge about. And I want to make sure that in this series that you're grappling with that personally. That when we, when we address the issue of knowing God, we're not asking you how much information do you have about Him. We live in an age where it is so easy to access and engage a lot of info. The question that Jesus is saying, is saying eternal life is that you know Him, that you've come to an experience of God. And, and that you know Jesus Christ, um, whom God has sent. We said last week that a big part of this knowing is realizing that there's not a separation between God, Christ, and us, but that Christ is in the Father, and the Father is in Him, and we are in Christ. So when Jesus deals with this conversation, He's helping us locate ourselves, that we are in Him. So many times when we chat about the notion of knowing God, we think we're talking to people that don't know anything about God, that they're excluded. And we sort of fall into the trap that when people ask you, do I know God? Yes, I've come to a point of salvation. I want to make sure that you understand this morning, that's not what I'm asking. The knowledge of God, the knowing God is the question, is your relationship with God so impacting the experience side of you? That it is constantly transforming the essence of who you are. We said last week that a big part of um, grappling with that is that Jesus said that He promised us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And still in my life and in my world, even in my own thoughts, I challenge myself constantly and I catch myself where I think about the Spirit as the Spirit of truth, as the Spirit that will help me to know what is the difference between right and wrong. Because that's the only thing the Holy Spirit's going to do, that He's going to convince me <laughs> of what is right and wrong. But is, that is, those are thoughts so um, dominated by the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where our only thought of what the Spirit will bring to us is to show us what we should and shouldn't do. But when Jesus speaks of truth, he says, the spirit that will show you a new reality, a new truth, he'll open your, your mind, your world, your spirit to the understanding of the kingdom. That's what the spirit will bring to you. So it's so much more than just knowing personally what, to, what, what is right and what is wrong, or using the spirit in some cases to tell others what they should and shouldn't do. A big part of spirit living is the fact that the Spirit opens our spiritual senses to see life from a completely different perspective. So Jesus continues that conversation in John 15, and that's where we sort of stopped last week, saying that, that there's four things that the vine dresser, this Father that works on us, will bring to us. He says He'll save us, and we spoke about the fact that He'll lift us up. He'll deal with our sin and our self, um, which is always interesting. Um, I think just in this week, grappling with how many times I see self reflected in moments, where I've got to say, God, help me. Because if self is still at the center of my being, I will have no joy. Because I can't go to the next movement where abiding takes place. 
See, Jesus says the vine dresser, God the Father, will come in and he will prune and he'll deal with sin and self. To the point where you are removed from the center and you allow God that place where he actually fills and saturates your being. And that's where we move into a place called abiding, where joy, abiding, where joy becomes real. This, this whole notion of, of, of abiding is, is having faith in Christ, that He is who He says He is, and that He can do what He says He can do. And that brings joy, that brings peace, it brings a constant state of dependence, where if abiding isn't present in your life, you will take control. Can I say that again? If we don't abide well, we control. Because who's at the center? So it's a critical journey for, for all of us to grapple with, with this notion of control. To, to, to move into this constant state of dependence. And you depending on God as a mature Christian means so much more than the person that just enters Christianity. One thing that I keep asking myself is, Clinton, should it become easier the longer I journey with Christ? Or is His work deeper and more challenging as I continue? See, I think we've sort of reduced and we've swung it the other way. The poor person that comes into faith, you've got to stop this and you've got to do this and you've got to do And we put this whole demand on their life. <laughs> but then we just coast. Sort of almost not allowing the work of God's Spirit to do the work in us that we expect Him to do in someone's life that doesn't grapple or hasn't grappled with the reality of being in Christ the way that we have. And my, can I just say again, I said it last week, that abiding is the one that we um, negotiate so often in our life. It's the one we skip. We like the fact that God lifts us up, and yes, I want to acknowledge my sin and self at some points, but then I want to skip, I want to do something for God. But there's this deep sense of God's Spirit working in us that's critical for every one of us. And the last one is this, um, that we um, and our lives will flow with His life, that the vine flows through us and that we show love to the world in what the Father has done in us. And that's sort of the definition when we say that 2020 is the year of fruitfulness. That's sort of what we're trusting God for, that God would save people. I'm trusting that God would work deeply in people's lives through sin and self. So if there's a level of discomfort, welcome it. Don't skip it. Um, I'm trusting that 2020 will be a year where you could discover in a deeper way what abiding actually means to you. Uh, but more than anything, I'm trusting that this church, the people in this church would be known as a church that brings life wherever we go. So this morning, I want to grapple with this question, seeing God. Um, interesting question. I think it's one of the key things that everyone um, that I know has probably in conversations that I've had to them, I just want to see God. <laughs> Have you ever thought about what you mean when you say that? What does it mean when you say, I just want to see God? We're going to unpack a little portion of Scripture this morning that I want to read um, for you. I'm going to read 10 verses quickly just to create context, and then we'll unpack. Is that okay? But this is an incredible conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. <clears throat> if you exit John 2, you'll realize that out of John 2, there was a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, and they say, we are not sure who you are, so show us a sign, Jesus, because we're not going to respond to you if you don't show us something. And the Bible says that Jesus chose not to show them anything. 
So there's certain times where we demand a sign, where we want to see God and He's got to prove Himself to us, where Jesus just says, no, I'm not going to. But then this conversation enters in. And I reckon it's probably one of, uh, and I'll say it about a lot of portions in the Bible, but this is pivotal for us to grapple with. So John 3, verse 1 to 10, there was a a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus, saying, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Humans produce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. (laughs) Suddenly, Nicodemus, from we all know Jesus, comes to this question. (laughs) How are these things possible? I love these conversations that Jesus has with us, where we we enter into the conversation that we know, and suddenly He starts dealing with us and working in us, and we realize we know nothing. Um, And it's a beautiful place. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? Great question to end off with. Now, I'm going to run through a few things this morning, um, so I want to ask you to keep with me. Most of it's on the screen, uh, but the key thing that I want to sort of grapple with this morning is what happens at new birth? What actually happens with us when we enter into this reality where Jesus says, you must be born again? Twice, um, he says that to Nicodemus in verse 3 and verse 7, you must be born again. So I think first assumption that we can make is that Jesus is speaking of a new life, not just a new religion. Is that fair to say? See, what happens in new birth is not us getting a new religion, and we've sort of played with that in in Christianity over the years, that if we leave ourselves to ourselves, the only thing that we'll do with God is we'll form a new religion, a new set of rules. So a big part of this is grappling with the fact that Jesus is not asking us to consider a new religion. He's inviting us to new life. Now, this is important because Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, listen, I'm a respected teacher. I'm a Pharisee. I know um, just by way of being a Pharisee, I know a lot of things. And he says, I know that you are a man sent from God. So Nicodemus enters the conversation from a specific bias. Listen, I know a few things. But Jesus takes him on a very interesting journey. He says, Nicodemus, when you encounter me and the new life that I'm promising you, it's important for you to grapple with the fact that this is not just an addition to what you've seen. See, some people in their Christian walk want to continue without ever starting. That we just want to take this whole Jesus message and just add it to what we've already seen. 
And we think it's going to add a bit of a turbo to us. But Jesus comes to Nicodemus and says, listen, I don't care how much you think you know. He says, unless you are born again. He's not talking to an unsaved person. He's not talking to someone that knows nothing. He's talking to one of the examples of, 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 of religious knowledge, duty, and position. And he says to Nicodemus, if you don't allow something that sort of equates being born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, as Pharisee, um, has to grapple with these two statements. What does it mean? What does new birth mean? What does it mean to be born again? And I just want to say something about Nicodemus. I love his story. Um, later on in the Bible, um, he actually comes and, 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 and brings something to Jesus. So something happened in that evening conversation that's beautiful. And allow me just to have a little heart-to-heart conversation with, with us as congregation. I think all of us need to be very careful about what happens when the heart of religion taps into our heart. See, the heart of religion, the heart of the pharisaical system that went wrong, I don't think everything in the pharisaical system was wrong, but when it elevates my contribution above what God does, it becomes dangerous. And suddenly I walk into this with a sense of arrogance and a sense of pride and a sense of I know and you don't. And we see it right throughout the Gospels. That the one thing that all the gospel writers tells us is that they, the Pharisees, were constantly trying to find a charge against Christ. And I reckon that's at the heart of anyone stuck in being in this pharisaical environment, this religious, this me elevating the contribution of, of myself above the contribution of Christ. That, that we'll walk into environments thinking that we're bringing life. But actually, the only thing we're doing is we're looking for opportunities to put a charge against people. And there's a whole system that supports us, and it blinds us in so many ways that we can't see. And that's a big part of what I want all of us, me included, to grapple with this morning. That you could be stuck in a system of religion, thinking that you're making a great contribution But the reality is you can't see. And the reality is you're only bringing charge. And what comes out of your mouth in various environments is you are bringing charges against. One of the things that sort of hurt me, I want to say deeply, is when one of our local politicians, we invited him here to do an interview for us, came to church to do something we asked him to do. And someone actually came to him and said, oh, it's election time. You're just here to, to show visibility for your election. And I thought about that. And there's a part of me that wants to know who that person is, and there's a part of me that probably shouldn't know who that person is. Because the only thing that happens in a heart that struggles with that is I want to show you that you're wrong. And it's something that as Christians... It's evident in so many of our lives that we've got to consider the reality of what this actually brings to us. And I want to include me with you. That this is not me speaking at you, I'm speaking to us. That as church, if we are so good at bringing charge against and not showing love, we miss it. 
we can't see. And we're sort of reinventing a system that we think this is the contribution that God is asking me to bring. But in essence, our fruit is death. Our fruit is condemnation. Our fruit actually isolates people from the reality of God. So a big part of this is coming to terms with this, with this comment where, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, hey, your system, your religion, everything that you think is important means nothing. What is important is allowing me to deconstruct you, to bring you to a place where you could see me. So Jesus uses a very interesting reference. He says you have to be born again. When I grappled with, with this, I sort of asked my, myself the question, why new birth? Why birth? Because I would have had the same question that Nicodemus had. Jesus, how do I enter in where I... Logical question. But here's the, re- the reality. That birth brings new life into the world. That's God's mechanism of bringing life to this world. That's why Jesus was born through a virgin. That was the way that God brought life into the world. And Jesus is saying that there's something that needs to to happen in you that needs to be birthed in you. It's not just an addition. It's not just adding something. It's something that has to reform and transform the essence of who you are. So grapple with this. It's not just about a new religion. It's about the fact that God is inviting us to a new life. The second thing critical is that this new life, we've got to experience the supernatural, not just recognize the supernatural. That Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, Robbie, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So Nicodemus sees a divine activity in Christ at work. And, and, and the interesting thing is the fact that Jesus doesn't go to Nicodemus saying, Hey, Nicodemus, I wish everyone in Palestine and wherever we are could see this, could see the truth that you see about me. Jesus doesn't validate that. I mean, just in John 2, they said, We don't think you are who you say you are. Show us a sign. Here Nicodemus comes and says, Hey, I can see that you're coming from God. And Jesus doesn't commend that. Instead, Jesus says to him, hey, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not just about recognizing the fact that God is at work somewhere. It's about you experiencing the reality of what God is doing in your life. See, there's a little statement, and I hope, no, I don't have it on there. Missed it. (laughs) But I wrote it down here. What matters most is not merely recognizing the supernatural in Christ. It's experiencing the supernatural in me. Can I say that again? The reality of our Christian walk, and that's why so many of us just stay stuck in a knowledge about. We make a decision, and we never grow on. Because it's not just recognizing the fact that Jesus had supernatural ability. It's the fact that this knowing God brings us to a place where He wants us to experience it in us. And that's why that salvation, sin-self process is so important. Because the more we allow God to deal with the sin and the self-elements in us, the more we create capacity to experience God in our life. You know those little moments in life where you... um, when you know what you're preaching about, 
and then there's a divine setup and you fail miserably. I realized that about me last night. We had a key moment that if I share about my life journey, there's one year that I don't share anything about, unless provoked. And it was in 1993 where I was in the army. Paramedic, and as a young boy, 17-year-old, um, in where South Africa was at that stage, I was confronted with some of the most brutal things that I've ever seen in my life. Just how people acted against people, killing one another. And I filed that, that year, never talked about it, never dealt about it. Very, very um, seldom do I talk about it. And I realized that one thing that that year brought to me was I react when I see blood. Not because I'm scared of blood, but it brings something out of me. And last night, one of my daughters cut her hand. And the only thing that I saw was blood. And guess what came out? I stuck Clinton. In an area of my life, I still haven't dealt with that. Now, you could see and sit here thinking, oh, I think it happens to all of us. Where we have, have certain traumatic moments or just challenging moments or moments of trauma, um, anxiety or depression, and we file it and we park it and we don't allow God to work in it. And because we don't allow Him to work in that space, exactly what happens in me in little moments like that. When the triggers come, we act in ways that doesn't show, where it doesn't showcase what God actually does or who God actually is. And I realized last night in, in this statement that what matters most is not my ability to recognize the supernatural in Jesus, but to actually experience God's supernatural ability in me. And it's all of us in different ways and in different expressions. Jesus comes in John 6. <clears throat> he says, The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort, can't, uh, human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. This is what I want to bring to you, spirit and life. And I believe that's the essence of John 15, where between the Father, between, um, between what Christ divined us, between the Spirit infusing us, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ in a living union where Christ becomes our life where Christ becomes divine and where, where true life flows in us, where we become branches actually extending this life, but, but, but there has to be moments where we allow Him to bring healing to where we are. And can I just say, new life always makes faith possible. So one of the key th things that I know about myself is when it's just a, a Clinton religious response, the first thing that I vent to, even in moments like this, is I ask myself, what should I do? Where the reality of the Spirit's work in me, the first question the Spirit is always asking is, what should you see? Because if you can't see, you can't do. So this morning, it's not about challenging you about what you should do. What do you need to see? What is it that God has to open your minds up? Because if you see, you can do. Third one. <laughs> it's new birth. It's all about a new creation. It's not just about recreating the old. And I just want to read a, a verse. There's so much that I can say about this. But, but just in Ezekiel 36, um, there's this beautiful reference between 
between water and spirit, um, uh, wordplay in that. And Jesus said, unless you are born of water and of spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think there's a part of this that, that Jesus could be referring to. In Ezekiel 24, um, Ezekiel writes, he says, For I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. So I'll save you. Does it sound something like that? I will lift you up. I will gather you. I will bring you. It says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. So, <laughs> could it be that God is dealing with sin and self? That as I wash you, I deal with the idols in you. I deal with the filth that has stained you. I'm cleansing you. And then he says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees. Just listen to the wordplay. It's not follow my decrees and I will put my spirit in you. He says, I will put my spirit in you and you will follow. And you will live in Israel, the land that I gave to your ancestors long ago. I think this passage helps us understand that unless one is born again of water and of spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That there's a reality that God is not saying to us that you've got to get rid of you. He's saying you've got to get rid of the old you. That there's a part of you that has to die. That when Jesus engages the conversation with Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, you're dead. And you've got to be resurrected. You've got to discover life in you. So the, the, the references just in, in, in the Bible, we know that our old self was crucified, Romans 6, 6. That we have died with Christ, Colossians 3, verse 3. That we consider, consider ourselves dead, Romans 6, verse 11. Um, where we put off the old self and we are renewed in our thinking, Ephesians 4, verse 22. You don't add something to a dead person. What do you do to a dead person? You bury it. That there's a part of our makeup, a part of our being, that in the discovery of the kingdom of God, God brings a new life, and that entails the fact that something is dying. Something has become obsolete. And I think that's the reference of being born of water. That there's this incredible journey that God cleanses, cleanses us. Jeremiah 33 verse 8 says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive. That word forgive is so beautiful. I will send you away released. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. That's the essence of being born of water. But forgiveness and cleansing is never enough. That we are so stuck on the fact that God cleanses us that we never move on to the next part where, where Jesus promises this. He says, or Ezekiel promises this. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, I will re remove the, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A heart that's alive again. A heart that beats. A heart that actually brings Life blood into the being. It says, and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statue. See, I reckon, unless we are born again, we miss spiritual truth. We lose our sense of the beauty of Christ. We sort of dwindle down in our appreciation of the glory of God. 
and our definition of holiness becomes much more of a life management tool rather than me seeing and me becoming. Can I say that again? If religion is the way that we're functioning, we can't see from the Spirit. We lose sight of the beauty of Christ. We don't have a definition of the glory of God anymore. And holiness for us is just another tool to get me to do something rather than seeing and becoming. See, new birth, God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. So I want to end with this verse. Jesus comes, obviously Nicodemus is clueless by this stage, and he makes this comment. Um, he says, Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Here's something that I want you to understand. Firstly, the wind blows where it wants. God's Spirit is in charge of this process of recreating us, not us. That this is not a work that we're going to do for God. This is us allowing Him to show us how to die and to resurrect us. The second thing is, you hear its sound, means that the work of the Spirit is perceptible, although invisible. That so many times we get stuck. We know we can perceive something, but because it's not visible, those of us who are so analytical fall stuck in this moment. Jesus comes to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, your whole system is based on what you think you're seeing. But you can't see this. But you can perceive it. You don't know where it comes from. This movement originates from the Spirit. And I want to emphasize this. You don't know. You can't tell. But when it comes to new birth, in every season of our life, I think the one thing that we've got to say to ourselves is, you can't tell, and you don't have to know everything. But there's a place of allowing so that we can transition from a rule-based system where I think I've got to impress God by contributing to a place where I'm allowing Him to do a work so deep in me that I am actually a carrier of this new life that God is promising me. There's a mystery in this journey called being born again, or probably a better translation, being born from above. There's a beauty in that, that is mysterious. And you don't know where it goes, Nicodemus, and we don't know where it goes. We've got to grapple with this. But one thing we know is that it reveals one of two things. One, one of two things. Either in moments like these, you read this and you think about being born again is all about something that we've got to tell non-Christian people to do, not realizing that it's part of the way that God changes us. You've got to be born from above. You've got to allow me to birth new life in you. And those of us who are still in this, I need to control everything. Maybe at certain areas where your heart is so, so cold, it's become callous, you've lost a sense of wonder and a sense of beauty. This threatens the life out of you. Because what does a Christianity look like where I'm not in control? But there's another group that sits in this space where we know it threatens a part of us, but it thrills our being. It creates something in us that we know that if I don't get that, 
I'll bury any other treasure, but I'm going to keep digging until I find that one thing. It's this, this, this spirit that sits behind this um, notion in Romans 8, where Paul says, he says, this resurrection life you received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? If you've lost your sense of expectation, your sense of mystery, your sense of hope, the sense that, hey, God, I see everything through your eyes and everything is beautiful. Although this world is suffering, I see you and I see your kingdom. And because I'm seeing that, I'm going to enter every relationship, every moment of my life with this, what's next, Papa? It says God's spirit. And that's my prayer for us touches our spirit and confirms who we are. The moment that happens, we know him. He says, God's spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are. Father and children born from above. Could I invite you to stand with me as we just go into a moment of declaring the fact that God is a God unlike any other things.